0: Morning. All right, if you have uh, a Bible with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start just a few verses before that. Uh, If you have, we've been encouraging everybody to bring a notebook, a journal, or something to take notes in. If you don't have that, there should be a, a blank page for notes in the seat in front of you. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the chair in front of you underneath. Uh, Actually, if you borrow a Bible, it's page 957. I can get you there quicker. Um, We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. The letter that Paul writes that we call the biblical book 1 Corinthians is not the first letter between him and the church or the church and him. This is one in a correspondence back and forth. So the, the Apostle Paul began the church. He started it. You can read about that in Acts. He then keeps a relationship with them. He writes to them. They write to him. Some people have come and visited him. And and during this, Paul identifies 10 problems in the church in Corinth. And he begins to work with them on fixing them or working on them or what it looks like. And the overarching theme, if you will, for all 10 is unity and purity. Unity and purity within the church. So the church being one or unified, and the church being pure, holy, set apart for the work of God. Those are two things that, that unite all 10 issues. And last week we did issue number six, part one, if you will, where we talked about issues of conscience. And I started off by asking, okay, if two Christian adults are dating, are they biblically allowed to kiss? Which is a simple question, right? And Almost everybody immediately like, yes, okay, good. We think about what is allowable by God. We think of, okay, what is, what is allowable and then what is sin? And we tend to draw lines really close to sin, right? Okay, if this is sin, then we'll draw the line back here, right? But if this is sin, what Paul is going to make the case today is, why don't we draw the line further back, right? Now, Again, we talked about kissing last week, and we talked about the verses that say, do not arouse or awaken love before it's time. So, kissing's obviously permissible. How you date and the boundaries you set for yourself are issues of conscience up until the point of sin, right? Sin is marked out clearly. Then how do we live in light of that? We talked about different issues of conscience, alcohol consumption or, or other things that, that are biblically permissible, but then they might lead to sin or they might cause others to sin. And last week, the big takeaway was putting others before ourselves, that we should live in such a way that other people are prioritized over ourselves. Makes sense? That was kind of the takeaway in the area of issues of conscience. Now, this is part two of that same message. So it's same context, and the the Corinthians are struggling with eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Not really something we deal with today, so we kind of have to make it relevant. So here's their situation. The city of Corinth is built around what we would call idol worship, or worship of gods plural, right? The Corinthian, Roman, Greco-Roman gods. And so a lot of the places that people would gather have something to do with idol worship. It's kind of like this, like we've done not only weddings and funerals here, those are church functions, right? But also we've done baby showers, birthday parties. This gets used for other things. That doesn't mean that everybody who shows up for a birthday party is here participating in worship, right? Or that they're even Christians. And so people would come, and atheists may come to a birthday party here, right? And and now, now just flip that, and people were coming to faith, they were becoming Christians, and then they were invited over to a meal at a community place that was used for false worship. Are you with me? And then outside of those temples, meat would be sacri- or animals would be sacrificed, and the meat would be offered to idols. And that part of it, that part of their worship, was only part of the meat. And then the rest of the meat would be taken off to the meat market and people would buy it. And oftentimes you wouldn't know if that if that animal. Have been a part of a worship service or not. And so the, the two questions really they're asking about, can you eat that meat and can you attend those gatherings? And Paul's answer for both of those has been yes, you can, right? With, with some boundaries. Those are issues of conscience. The issue of conscience would be, if someone has recently come to faith out of that false worship, are you... Are you asserting your freedoms or your liberties in such a way that you're affecting them in their faith? You with me? That's his answer. So put them above yourself. So put their needs above your own. So today, if last week was loving others, today it's going to kind of flip to loving God. And so here is a note just to get you started. Liberty or idolatry? Things that we are allowed to do in this life, in other words, biblically permissible either draw us toward or lead us away from God. What leads us away from God becomes idolatry in our hearts. You can make your marriage, which is a good thing, can be a godly thing, you can take that to a place where it becomes an idol thing, right? Or a thing that you worship or give value, time, energy to before you give to God. Your kids are a blessing. Your calling is to disciple your children in their faith. But you can make your kids idols, right? Careers, you got to eat, right? If you're a husband who works and maybe you're the only income in your family, or maybe you're a single mom working, same thing, right? Either way, whoever, wherever you work, it's to provide. But when we pursue that in a way that only God should be pursued, or when we pursue that in an unhealthy way, it becomes an idol. So things that are permissible by God can be good things. When they're done wrong, they can become idols. Make sense? 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to start in verse 24, just a few verses before chapter 10 starts. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Paul begins with a metaphor for our faith. He says, in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So I want you to imagine this race that Paul is talking about, and you go back to ancient Corinth, right? That Greco-Roman culture that began the Olympics, things like that. There was, there was an emphasis on competition. And so I think of a marathon, I've won, I, I won, run one half marathon, right? And uh, that is one half marathon's too many, for the record. All right? I hate running. Any sport I ever played, when you get in trouble, what do you have to do? Run. Guess what they do to you in boot camp in the Army if you get in trouble? You gotta run. Want to know how often I got in trouble? I hate running, just for the record. And so we trained together. It was 2000, Ashley Kerryman, 2016. 2016. Uh, we ran, we did the half marathon, several of us. Um, many of them died and are no longer with us. And No. Many have moved out of state and have done other things. Some are still around. Um, but we trained for that. right? We trained for that. I want you to just imagine thousands and thousands and thousands of people all setting out to do either a full marathon or a half marathon. Now, when I trained for that, I trained every Saturday. I I trained throughout the week. But I didn't really, I wouldn't say I changed my diet. I don't know that I really focused on, uh, up until the few days before, there's some very specific dietary things you do, uh, which I did. But up until then, the the majority of my training existed in in kind of a team training on Saturdays, and then some early morning runs before work and the the weeks leading up to it. But if I was to tell you that I entered that, and I trained to win. Uh, I, well, I, I couldn't tell you that. right? I didn't train to win. I trained to finish. right? I wanted to just do it. Which I did. And to be fair, for those of you guys that know Scott Hines, uh, Scott was a part of our church. He's also out of state now. And Scott and I did it together. And we used to run together and train together. And about three miles into 13.1 miles, he blew his knee out. Yeah. And that was my excuse to quit right there. Like, he's hurt, I'm a good friend, right? And like, I will, I will quit with you, right? And so, um, but <laughs> I can't stand him. He wanted to finish. And so, like, you know, I couldn't stand it. Like, oh, he's like, no, I'm going to do it. Made me feel really bad about wanting to quit. We finished. He was probably, four, probably three or four miles in. We finished the whole thing. And that uh, was slower than either one of us wanted to, to do. But uh, we did. But I didn't compete to win. I just competed to do it and to finish. Verse 25. Every eth- athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. A wreath back then was uh, kind of like modern day trophy, right? They got this wreath that they'd be given. And it was perishable, like it would die. It was literally made of you know flowers and leaves, those kind of things. It was a wreath. And so it really would die pretty quick, right? So it's very perishable. So self-control here. When it says self-controlled, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. This this word that they use there is defined as to keeping one's emotions, desires, or impulses under control, or to control or abstain. So to, to abstain from things that you're not to do, right? And to discipline yourself towards that. And so Paul is making this example, and he's relating it to our faith. And so what I want you to ask is just kind of like, why would it be so important for us to continue in our faith so strongly? And the answer that Paul is coming to is because our eternity depends on it. And I'm going to make the case that not only does our eternity depend upon it, but others as well, right? And so he is urging us to understand our faith in a different light, to treat it like an athlete who competes, like a runner who runs to win. Verse 26, Paul says, So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. So there's one of the... So that was in... 2016. So that was my late 40s, decided to run a half marathon. And then just before I turned 50, I had my last jiu-jitsu tournament. And so I got to compete in jiu-jitsu just after turning 50. Now that I approached differently, right? And I am not a guy who's going to get up early that day and cut weight in order to weigh in. So I started losing weight earlier to fit my weight bracket that I wanted to be. I started training much more regularly. I did change my diet. I won, by the way, just throwing that out there. All right, just throwing that out there. Okay, so, um, but uh, I trained to win. And I approached that training differently, right? I wasn't just training to go and attend and show up and get some kind of participation trophy, which I got a little thing for being in the marathon, right? But I'm much more proud of the gold medal for winning especially after turning 50. I was pretty thrilled about that, right? And so, but I, what I want you to hear is that I approach those things very differently. One, to just participate and finish. Finish was the goal, right? 13.1 miles, one to finish. But here, I really wanted to win, right? I really wanted to compete. I wanted to beat the others. I wanted to win, right? Two boys, you guys just, was it last weekend? You guys got golds in jiu-jitsu. So these guys still competing, much younger than me. And uh, it means they heal up faster, but um, there's a different approach to wanting to win. Now, there are people who show up to those marathons to win. I'm just not one of them, right? There are people that treat that very seriously. In fact, one of the guys that we, I'll say we trained with, which means we both showed up at the same time, and then he went off and did his thing, and then by the time I was getting around to finishing, he was already there. But there was a guy in our group that won his age group. Right? There was a young man who won his age group in the marathon and, uh, and, and yeah, in the full marathon. He trained very differently than I did. So there's two examples. Here's what we have and I was just writing down some things. So what boxers or runners would do? So we always use the language of train hard, compete easy, right? Train hard, fight easy. That's the idea. If you train really hard here, this is much easier. So train regularly, have a coach, have a team, aim at physical fitness, mental preparedness, dietary plan for health, right, denial of self or uh, uh, denying self of bad foods like junk foods, right, denying of other bad things, whatever that would be that would impact your health or your or your mental ability, right? Everything else in life then is shaped around the competition. Right? If you're aiming at this, if you're going to if you're going to drive towards this competition, especially if it's something big. Now if you're a jiu-jitsu guy and you compete regularly, You stay in shape you do it differently but if you're gonna run one thing like an Olympic marathon or something one time every X amount of however when in Corinth however often they did it for us be every four years you train towards that thing much different right you would start many months out right and start focusing and changing your life around this and so question is really what do we live sacrificially for Right? So in your life now, there are things you sacrifice for. Is it sports? Is it education? Right? Is it work? Is it financial gain? Is it what? Right? What is it that you will sacrifice for? That you will orient your life around, that you will give up other things for, what is it that you will do that for? And then the question is, do we do that? Do we live that way for our faith? You see, if we live like that for something else, but we don't live like that for Jesus, we call that idolatry, right? If you're willing to orient yourself around something, but you're not really willing to sacrifice and train and discipline and orient yourself around Jesus, then you're giving yourself to something else in a way that you should be giving yourself to Jesus. So I want to read that verse again, But I, verse 27, But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the warning from Paul is that we are to live disciplined lives like an athlete who is training to win a competition, win a race, a runner to run and win a race, that we are to live our Christian lives like that, or we risk disqualification. So what does disqualified mean? There's two ways to really look at this. We could see this as losing an eternity with God. We can also see this as being disqualified as a witness to others. Now, both have application, right? I would say if you're unwilling to orient your life around Jesus fully, then the question is, are you truly following Jesus, right? Or maybe, maybe you, you, you are just culturally a Christian, but not really have given your life to following Jesus. So that would be the, inter- the eternal implications, right? But Paul says that I do this so that after preaching to others, I myself might not, be, might not be disqualified, right? So I think the other side of that is, do we live in such a way that when we're sharing our faith with other people, when we're telling other people about Jesus that our life would disqualify us from being that messenger. Now, I think today, maybe we are more, maybe we are more moved by the eternal implications. That's fair, I think. But are we impacted or are we moved by ourselves being disqualified from preaching to others? So if god were to look at you and say this listen because of your life you are no longer able i'm not going to let you share your the gospel with other people you're no longer a witness to others that you care about you can't be how would that change you would that affect you would that hurt you in some way would that would you feel like you had lost something the question really is are you living as a witness to others on purpose to see the gospel go forward because if you're not doing that then the removal of this isn't that big right but Paul says that listen I discipline myself I train myself I sacrifice for this I run like I can actually win the marathon I I live that way so that after proclaiming the gospel I will not be disqualified so yes I think there's an eternal implication but I also think there's a local or witness to others implication as well. You can play with those in your mind as we talk through this. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. He says, for I, do not want, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, our fathers. He's talking about ancient Israel. Now, I want you to understand this. He's in, in first century Corinth, which was primarily non-Jewish. Right, So these are a bunch of non-Jewish people that have come to faith in Christ. So they didn't come to faith in Moses. They weren't raised in a synagogue. These are people that used to worship foreign gods, false gods, idols. That's the whole context of this book, especially this section. So they're coming from outside of Christianity, outside of Judaism, straight to Christianity. But he's identifying our fathers, so us, most of us here are not Jewish. Most of us are not ethnically Jewish right? And I would say even less of us probably were raised worshiping in a Jewish faith. And so inside of that context, when he says, I, I, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers, our fathers is ancient Israel, the Israel of the Old Testament. And so this is going to be what we call typology. We talked about this in the minor prophets over the summer. You may have missed that. I'm going to, I'm going to use these words type and antitype, right? So the type is the Old Testament person, place, or event. And then the antitype is the New Testament version of that person, place, or event. And so biblical typology analyzes how New Testament persons, places, events, right? Or institutions fulfill Old Testament persons, events, institutions. So Israel in the wilderness is now being compared to Corinthian Christians, right? The the wilderness... For the Corinthian church is the place that they're in right now, right? Living in a foreign and hostile world to them, living distinctly as Christians. Israel out in the wilderness with no home, awaiting a future home, right? Okay, verse 1. So let's start back there. Chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. I want you to hear this all over and over and over again. Right? All under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now there's a lot to unpack there. First, you have to understand what we're talking about when we talk about Israel in the wilderness. And so go all the way back to one of the most famous stories of all the Old Testament, and it's the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, right, under Pharaoh and the, the, the deliverant that God delivers them out of slavery comes through ten plagues on the Egyptians. Now Moses is actually a murderer on the run, in the hiding, outside of Egypt. He was raised in Egypt. He was raised as an Egyptian, though he is Hebrew. He is a Jew. But after murdering somebody, he's on the run, he leaves, and God calls him to go back and to tell Pharaoh, whom he knows, to let this 1.5 million Jews, his, uh, uh, Pharaoh's free labor force, to let them go. Right? Pharaoh obviously says no. God does so in such a way where he causes these different plagues. It results in the death of the firstborn, whether human or animal, in every house. But for those who did what God said and and offered a lamb as a sacrifice and painted their doors, death passed over them. Death didn't affect their home, right? That becomes the celebration in the Old Testament called Passover. That's the very meal where Jesus sits down with his disciples and fulfills that and says, Now this, is, this cup is a promise in my blood. right? This bread is my body broken. The very thing we'll talk about today in communion. Right? So Jesus fulfills that. Again, our Father, we have a shared history, and we go all the way back to the to the prime or the most important moment in Israel's history. If I were to tell you about my conversion when I first came to faith, right, and kind of that is the the most important kind of conversion or story in my life. That's when I went from who I was to who I am now. Right? There's that line that got crossed. That line for Israel is the deliverance from Egypt. Then they spend 40 years in the wilderness doing what could have been about a three-week walk from where they were to where they end up. And the reason for the 40 years is their disobedience in the wilderness. But they all had, and remember the word all is being repeated, they all had some pretty amazing things. When Egypt starts to pursue them after they've been released and an army is coming at them, God parts the Red Sea and lets them walk by on dry ground. And once they get out of the water and the Egyptian army is pursuing, the waters crash back in on the Egyptian army and kill the Egyptians. So all who were in the wilderness got to walk on that dry land. Right? Or at least all those who were alive. Maybe children were born later, but you get my point. Right? And then God led them by putting a cloud over the top of them, during the daytime, and a pillar of fire at night. And so you can imagine wandering through the desert, that cloud might be really nice, right? And at night, when it is pitch black, that pillar of fire is really helpful, right? But it was also the presence of God right there with them. And then when they had no food, God miraculously provided manna, this miraculous bread that appeared on the ground every morning, And when they were out in the middle of the desert and they had nothing to drink, God, a couple times, made water come from a rock. He also took a bitter stream and made it good, clean water. So God provided for them. And what Paul is saying here is that our shared history, our faith history, though it may not be our biological history, our genetic history, our faith history, they were all experiencing the same thing. They all walked through the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. They all were fed by miraculous manna. They were, all, they were all drank by miraculous drink, water. And so he's saying they all have this shared experience. However, many were disqualified. Let's read verse 4 again. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, notice the capitalization in your Bible, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So he says they were baptized into Moses, the parallel baptism into Christ. Manna and water, their provision physically in the wilderness is the bread and the cup of communion in the church, our spiritual provision. Christ's presence among them in the cloud and in the fire becomes Christ's presence within us, the very spirit that lives within us if we are in Christ. And so what what gets us from here to there, what delivers us from where we were dead in our sins to here is Jesus. That Jesus enters into human history to bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful humanity. To come and do what we are incapable of doing, where it's impossible for us to do. We We can't become perfect. We can't earn our way back to God. We have failed God. We've all failed God. We call that sin. And if you're new here, if you're our guest, or if you've recently begun coming, then let me just say this. that those of us that are here, that, that are members of this church, that, that have been here for a while, we'll be the first ones to tell you that we're sinful. We don't think we have hear the yes. <clears throat> we should do better. But uh right, well, like we don't think we have it all together. We know that even in Christ, knowing the cost, knowing the penalty for sin, that we still fall short, that we still choose to do wrong things when we know they're wrong. That's sin. So knowing we could never work our way back to God, God becomes flesh. Jesus becomes human. And he lives a sinless life, the life that you and I are called to live, but choose not to. And then he suffers and dies in our stead or on our behalf. He pays the penalty, endures the wrath of God so that we don't have to, so that if we're in Christ, that we are, that we are made new. The The resurrection from the dead. So Jesus is dead for three days and resurrects from the grave and lives today that is alive. Not just rose from the dead and then died again. Rose from the dead and is alive eternally now. And that that is where we get new life from. And when we get that new life and we're baptized into Jesus then he places his spirit within us. So instead of a cloud above there's a presence within. And so we're called to live in response to that. So God did all the heavy lifting. Jesus did all the hard work. We just receive it for free by faith. And we begin to walk in that. And so here's what Paul is saying is, listen. He says we're called to live like we're only going to be one winner and we want to be it. We're training in our faith. We're to discipline ourselves, to set other things that would distract us away and, and, and drive towards this. Let's use some examples from those things earlier. So, you can be married and parents, and those things can be a part of your Christian journey. In fact, they can draw you closer to God, or you can flip where they sit in your life and they can become idols. Husbands leading their families and wives and kids towards Jesus, the family is, it helps catapult them closer, right? Wives and moms. It, leading in in, in Christ that helps draw you nearer. Being a part of a church that draws you nearer. It's a team that we have together to run this race, to train towards the prize. And so he says, now don't you understand that all in the wilderness experienced all these things, but many of them were disqualified. And we're going to see some of those disqualifications in a minute. But I want you to hear this out of Galatians chapter 1 as we kind of Think through the gospel applied to us. Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To deliver us from this present evil age. See, we live even though spiritually we're now in Christ, we still live in this world. Just like Israel was in the wilderness, we still live here. That's why Jesus uses language like, this is not our home right? That we're not of this world, that we're citizens of heaven, but we're here. And while we're here, Paul is reminding us to keep our eyes fixed on where we will be, where we want to be, how we will train and drive ourselves towards that. So Jesus' goal is to deliver us out of this wilderness to the world that he creates for us. Yes, that'll be here, but this world has to go away first, But while we're here, we live sacrificially. We live this way. Instead of focusing on this life, we live sacrificially so that others might know Jesus as well. So we love others, and we love God. We have this vertical and horizontal relationship of love. Last week, loving others. This week, putting God central or putting Jesus central in our lives. So verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So I want you to hear this. All of Israel is given the same miraculous experience and signs and provision. They ma- they're just miraculously, God gives them food on the ground every morning. And when there's no water in sight, God miraculously provides water. God's presence stays with them, protects them, delivers them literally through a sea. But yet, with most of them, listen, not even just like a handful, with most of them, God was not pleased. See, we've got to ask ourselves questions about the modern-day church. I met with a guy who left, he and his wife left the church at the end of last year, and I met with him uh, about a month ago. And he said that, one reason, was that our preaching centers, so or mine, I mean, our is true, but, but it centers centers in on what we should be doing, how we should change, how we should not be so sinful, and how we should strive towards God, rather than centering on God's goodness and, and God's mercy and God's holiness, which I would say is all true. The only reason we can have this conversation is because of God's mercy. Because of God's love for us, we have the opportunity to change. But here's what drives my... Pre- I always We make the joke. Like, I should have been an angry Old Testament prophet. I get it. Here's what drives me. Because God was unhappy with most of them. I don't want that to be us. I want us to have everything that God wants for us in this world and in the next... And I want to be everything God has called us to be in this world so that, so that we win the race, right? That we, we actually arrive and God's like, "Hey, good job." Right? I mean, like, that drives the message for me. So when the message is about God's glory, we'll talk about God's glory. But as of yet, we're six problems into 10 in First Corinthians. It's for you. All right, so. Uh, so we're into this. He's, he's been breaking down struggles in the church. He's not been telling them, hey, here's 10 ways you guys are killing it. He's like, here's 10 ways that the world you live in is killing you. And so that drives our preaching here. That we want to be more like Christ. That we want to be more like God created us to be. So the hope and, and the goodness and the mercy is that the gospel gives us that. But then we should strive towards it as if only one can win, and we want to be that one. Verse 6, it says, Now these things took place, meaning the Old Testament, for the most part, as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. We'll talk about this examples thing in a few verses. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not, let me just, How much of our lives are defined by eat, drink, sleep, play? I know. The immediate answer is like, I work a lot. I get it. What about the rest of our time? Right? He says that defined the Old Testament people. Verse 8, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now you don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to remember uh, some of the stories that happen in in, in the wilderness. But... Assuming you've never heard them before, in Numbers chapter 25, the the, people of, the men of Israel are encountering, encountering the people of Peor. And the women of Peor evidently are very pretty. Or maybe just the guys of Israel are just sick of looking at the same people. I don't know. But whatever it is, they're attracted to the women of, of Peor. But the people of Peor worship Baal, a false god. And so what happens is that sexual sin draws the men away and into false worship. And what happens is they begin to worship Baal. And God literally kills 24,000 of them, 23,000 in one day. That's what God does in response to this, right? In response to idolatry, kills them. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So in Numbers chapter 21, not too far away from the other, there's this grumbling that takes place. That God isn't doing things fast enough or good enough for the people. Oh, we're sick of the same miraculous food. Not like, hey, we could have died of starvation in the wilderness, but God keeps feeding us, right? And there's more to the story. God is far more generous than just that. But they begin to grumble and complain. And so God again sees them killed off. In the wilderness. So here's the thing. And as the people, 1.5 million of them, enter into the wilderness and work their way really through what should have been like a three-week, give it a month, walk. Ends up being 40 years. Because in the middle of that, God says this entire generation must die in the wilderness. Because I'm not going to let them get into the promised land. And so literally an entire generation except for two men die in the wilderness. And and that was God's punishment for their dissatisfaction with what God has given them and how God provided for them. Verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. So again, like in verse 6, they were written for as examples for us. And so the Old Testament was not just written as a history of the people of Israel, although there's some of that to it, but it's written down and God delivered it to us intact, inerrantly, for our learning. Right? It's not just a history, it's God's message to us today. It doesn't just exist for them, for the ones that lived it, or for the ones that came after, but it exists for us. like God made sure that it was captured and kept sovereignly superintended, so that you and I could learn from the mistakes of others. It's like when we're raising our kids, we share often, we'll share something about how we've done something wrong. The idea is not to condone what was wrong, but to teach them, hey, you can either learn by your making mistakes, or you can learn by your parents' mistakes, or your other's mistakes. And we can either learn by making our own mistakes, or we can read about it and learn from the mistakes of others. Romans 15 says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, again, to a church that is primarily non-Jewish, Christian church. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Endurance, like training for a marathon or a fight. Verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I want you to hear that today. If you think you are good with God as you are, Paul says, warning, you may fall. Right? Well, God loves me just as I am. God may love you, but he's not okay with where you are. He's not okay with where I am or where you are. See, the call of the gospel is perpetual or ongoing repentance. Right? Because there's always broken, there's always sin, there's always Self, or there's always idolatry. And again, our idols today don't typically take the form of a little golden statue somewhere, although sometimes that's true. But ours are just in the way we give our heart, our time, our energy, affection to something that should only be given to God in that way. Verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This translation uses a way of escape. Others use way through. Notice the qualifier at the end, that you may be able to endure it, right? So just like Israel in the wilderness, right, that you you will have temptation, you will have these things, you will have hardship. The job that, that you're given is to endure. And the strength given to you is provided that you can endure. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved from idolatry. I speak it to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. So a question: do we run away from sin or do we slowly turn and walk away as we're as we feel comfortable with, if we walk away at all? What does our attitude about sin tell us about the status of our faith? Right? If we're okay with sin. What does that tell us about our, our being in Christ, right? The, has gospel transformation really taken root in our lives? And you'll always have sin. We're talking about, are you okay with your sin? Right? Just a few chapters back, we were talking about lifestyle-defining sins. Things that, when you do them so much, that they define you. And then we're talking about people in the church belonging to the church, formal members of the church, they not be living in ways that define them. They should be living in ways that define them as a follower of Jesus. Verse 16, he says, the, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So we're going to look at communion in, uh, I believe it's next week, so we're going to look at, we'll do a deeper dive on communion next week. So I won't spend a lot of time on it, but he's talking about one cup, one bread, right? That we are one body, right? And again, body means local church. That we're one body together as a local church. But he, he talks about participation. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ, right? Participation is that word. If you've been around the church for a long time, it's that word koinonia, right? You've heard that word if you've been around the church for a long time. If you haven't, that's okay. It means fellowship, right? That's a, a good, simple way to, uh, to, to translate it. Friendship, fellowship, community. It's that idea, right? And, and here's what he's saying, that when we take communion together, do we not participate in the fellowship, the community of Christ with one another and with God. There's the, the vertical and the horizontal, right? The vertical relationship, are we not participating with God? And the horizontal relationship is with our local church. And that's what he's saying. Our participation is, is really a belonging to, belonging to Christ and belonging to one another. Verse 18, he says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants, right? Belonging to the altar. That's what he's talking about. Verse 19, What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? So now he's going back to the big theme for these three chapters. Remember, about meat sacrificed to idols, and about meeting inside those temples for other events. He's already said, no, you don't get to go to worship there. No, you don't participate in worship and sacrifice. You don't do that. That's clearly the the line of sin. Like when we talk about dating, we know where the line of sin is out here. No, you don't do that. But then there's a lot. There's, there's some area back here that is not just complete abstinence, but can you go in and go to a dinner that's held at a hall like this? Or can you eat that meat, not as a part of worship, but if that happens to be sold in a marketplace, that's what he's talking about. Verse 19, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans, pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants. Community, fellowship, there's that word. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Last week, after the issues of conscience message, at a series of conversations with people that spanned everything from yoga to, um, to going to a same-sex wedding, all these things, or, or to a transgender person, being, how do we relate to transgender, all these things, right? And it's this participating with. So you can't go and be a part of the worship sacrifice to an idol because you're participating with demons. By the way, other religious systems, and again, this is, this is a line that Scripture draws, that other religions would tell you the same thing. We would just suggest that this is God's word, and that that's the only reason why, is because God, it's God's word. But another religion isn't just off track or wrong or well-intentioned it's community with demons, right? Whether that's Allah or that's whatever, the Mormon Elohim, whatever it might be, right? That it's not just, well, they mean, well, oh, it's all the same God anyways, because by the way, all those religious systems will tell you, no, it's not the same God, right? He's saying it's actually demonic. When you're worshiping an idol, in this case, it's actually demonic. I got a phone call this last week I got actually, it was a message during the weekend when we were away at the men's retreat. Um, I got home late Saturday. I was here Sunday to preach here. And afterwards, I go home after passing out on my couch. I get back up, watching some football, and I'm checking through some messages. And I I got a message from uh, a woman who is just super dear to Lisa and I. She's like a daughter to us. And uh, she was down here for many years. She moved back up to Northern California and I don't know, six months to a year ago, her and I talked, and she was working through some things. And, and though she was a believer that I saw, a believer here, she was in Christ, prized her faith, she was a part of a church that we, that we led. When she left, she just walked away from that. And uh, the contact uh, several months ago, uh, she was asking me some questions. And when she would say something spiritual, I would say Jesus. When she would talk about higher power, I'd talk about Jesus. Right? And I just treated her, and this, we've been talking a lot about this we've, uh, lately, just treated her like a non-believer. I just focused the gospel at her. Right, Not saying that she died or she'd go to heaven, go to hell. it's just not about that. It's, it's about, okay, you're not living in Christ, I'm going to target the gospel at you. Right. So several months go by, and for some reason she ends up asking me a question. She's like, hey, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing this. I trust you, can you just help me work through this? And so in this conversation, one of her questions was that she and her husband own a yoga studio in Northern California. And she's wrestling that ever since our last conversation, which by the way, I wish I'd known, pretty cool. She's been praying and she's been changing. And I didn't know that. I thought she read it, hit delete, I don't know, right? And she's been changing over that time. And their yoga studio, her and her husband's uh, never really has rebounded from COVID. And so lately, she's been praying about, do I even continue doing this? And so we got to have a conversation about this, and there were Hindu gods in her yoga studio, and, and she had bought into, at some level, had bought into the Hindu kind of eastern side, the, the religious side of yoga. But we're able to separate out, here's the physical component that's actually healthy and good for you and that you enjoy, and here's the spiritual component. Clearly, this one you can't do. Last Wednesday she called me and she got rid of all those deities out of the studio and, and she's making amazing changes. Today she'll be in a guy knows church up in Auburn, California. And she'll be attending church for the first time in, I think, decades. It's amazing, right? Idolatry is still real, right? We may make it more subtle sometimes by making it about sports or education or family or other things, income, job, success, owning a home, whatever it might be. But it still is alive and well. And here's what it says, verse 21, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. She had to come to that conclusion, I can't do this and that, right? Verse 21, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Paul says you cannot be both. You can't be a Christian on Sunday and all about your sports team on Wednesday or Tuesday or whatever, right? You can't be one or the other. It's either Jesus fully all the time, and if you have time for something else, great, right, because those things are good, but you, you have to be committed to one. You can't worship two things. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In that case, it's money. But it applies across the board. You can't serve two masters. We have this battle every sports season where we lose people to sports for weeks on end. Right? And just, I mean people who play. I don't mean just people who stay home and watch their football team. That's another conversation. But if you're a parent, what, do you tell your kid? what are you telling your kids? You may tell them that we worship Jesus, but when you leave the church for months at a time to play whatever sport you play, your actions are saying something different. Right? And if you will devote yourself to this thing, but not devote yourself to Jesus in the same way, I would suggest that's idolatry. I think Paul would say, you can't do both. So what is our thing? Right? What is it that we will give time, energy, money, affection to? What is it that we will change our lives over? And then the question is, do we do that for Jesus? Do we give ourselves wholly and completely to Jesus? Every week at the end of the message, we talk about a takeaway. What is your takeaway? What's something you heard today that you want to apply to your life maybe over the next week, maybe two and so here's just some ideas, and then we're going to get some time where you can talk to somebody next to you about what your takeaway is. So for me, uh, I use the example of I trained for uh, jiu-jitsu in one, I, for a half marathon just to finish. I just recognize I treat my faith more like the marathon, and I need to train to win, right? I still train, I still did, and I still do in my faith. I train, and I, and I, and I give energy to my faith, but I don't, I don't think I I think I do it more like the marathon. I'm doing it to finish, to participate. I need to, I need to treat my faith like that last competition, that last fight. Mature believers, you are to be the coaching staff for the team, which is the church. How can you help others in the faith to excel as a church, to win in their faith, if you will, to strive towards the goal in their faith? If you're new to faith, you are learning how to live in Christ. Don't just live to exist or to finish, but train to live in your faith as if eternity depends on it. Run like you're running for the one and only prize. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, just as all of us need to constantly put Jesus above all else, today you have an opportunity to put Jesus as first in your life. That's the first step to living for Jesus, it's just to say, okay, I'm going to put him first. Even without knowing all the implications of that, it's just to say, listen, I'm going to live for Jesus. He's going to be first in my life. Parents and kids, parents, do you teach your kids to train in their faith the way you teach them to do well in school or to do well in sports? Do you teach your kids to devote themselves to Jesus? Sacrificing other things that would get in the way so that they can live with Jesus forever, be a witness for Jesus forever in the same way we might over academics or athletics. Let's take a couple minutes and just would you share your one takeaway with someone around you? Just take a few minutes and then we will circle back up and do communion.